Hello and welcome to On Liberty, coming to you live from the Centre for Independent Studies here in Sydney. I'm Glenn Fay, your host for today's episode. I'm filling in for your regular host, Salvatore Babonis. Joining me today is Dr. Michael Johnston. He's Associate Dean of Education at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. We'll be discussing civics and citizenship in liberal democracies. Michael, welcome to the CIS. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Look, let's, to kick us off, I want to explore the question of really what civics and citizenship means in a liberal democracy. So, of course, all, in all liberal democracies and all modern democratic societies, we want citizens and especially young people to be able to be informed and responsible participants in society. But what exactly does that mean? I mean, there, there's competing ideas, as, as, as I see it, between a knowledge about democratic processes or sharing of nationhood and national values and traditions, but also an element of the level of participation and active participation in civic institutions. Is it all of these things? Is it none of them? Is it something else? It's a good question. So I, I would start by saying that when we think about how we educate for democracy or to, for people to become active participants in democracy, we need to think about exactly what we mean by democracy. What, what does it mean to have a democratic system of government? So uh, at one end, we could think it's the institutions of democracy that are important. So voting and the idea that there's a government in opposition. And in that, to that extent, we might want to educate children to know what the institutions of their particular democratic system are. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But I'd like us to think a little more deeply about what democracy really is, which to me is something quite a long way beyond the institutions themselves. It goes to the value base of uh, the citizenry. So to me, there are certain values that have to be widely held in a society or a culture for democracy to survive and thrive. Uh, in particular, I think we need to revere, and I use that word advisedly, the value of free speech. So this is a, a, a question that's come up in New Zealand recently because there is currently before parliament legislation to limit free speech in various ways in the name of curtailing hate speech. Um, I understand Australia has probably had similar processes and so has the UK and uh, United States is a bit different because they've got their Second Amendment that protects uh, free, the free expression of ideas. But we might want to think about what free speech actually gives to democracy um, and why it isn't just, you know, the freedom to say whatever you, you want or, or something quite simplistic like that. Mm. So what I'm coming to is the idea that democracy is a, what we might call an agonistic process. It involves structured disagreement. It's why we have a government and an opposition, because nobody has a monopoly on what is right or what the correct answer to a problem is. Uh, and so it rests on the ability to have debates, to have arguments, to have disagreements in a way in which nobody thinks of themselves as being the necessary winner, that actually we need to have the ongoing argument in order to get to better ideas. And so when it comes to education for democracy, I think that should be a, a central plank that we teach children 
that disagreement isn't about winning. It isn't about hating the person that has a different perspective than yours or, or thinking that they're, they're just wrong about everything, but rather approaching it um, in the spirit of what they can learn from the conversation, what they can contribute to the conversation, and to see themselves as a participant in a process that might get to a better idea than anybody would have had on their own. And so if you to ask me what the central thing we can do to promote you know, the idea of civics education in a liberal democracy, it would be that, which isn't to say we shouldn't teach them about you know, the system of government as well. When it comes to the more nationalistic ideas, I mean, that, that may well be a, a universal across just about every country. I mean, irrespective of the system of government, a totalitarian government certainly likes to inculcate, you know, love of nation. But really, in a democracy, it seems to me that love of country should flow from an appreciation of the, the liberty that we enjoy in a democracy and, and the pro, a certain pride in the processes that allow us to make decisions peacefully and things like that. And so is that really the, the distinction then between the societies that, that are liberal democratic in nature and those that don't have a, a strong tradition of democracy is the, is the key difference then less so about promoting the citizenship element or nationhood and even the processes in which uh, governments, government is uh, conducted, but that it's, the, it's a different set of values that, that are instead promoted. Would that, would that be? Yeah, so we might, we might want to think about what we actually share in a nation. So in a totalitarian system, there might be an insistence on certain positions of doctrine. And, you know, we're proud of our country because we uphold unity above all else. And, you know, in the worst case scenario, it might be an ethnic unity where we want to marginalise people of different backgrounds and, and promote a, a central dominant uh, ethnicity. In a democracy, we want to be more pluralistic. And so actually what we might revere is the values that allow us to do that. And from that, the love of country might flow rather than it being imposed by authority. To me, something that's imposed by authority, whether it's you know love of country or religion or whatever it is, it, it's not meaningful, it's not authentic. It's just people saying what they're expected to say to avoid persecution or to avoid um, being marginalized. Uh, regular viewers and members of the CIS will be familiar that uh, just recently, the Australian Education Minister joined us to discuss uh, reform to the national curriculum, among other things. And one of the key messages from the push and the recommendations that he has made to the curriculum authority is to instill through the school system a love of country, among other things. And this is a strong, clearly a strong commitment that, that the government would like to pursue. Is that a risk in terms of the competing with that nationhood element and also promoting that contestability of ideas, the, the pluralism of, of, of belief and so on, is it, is it potentially counterproductive? It depends how they go about it, it seems to me. So if it's done in a kind of authoritarian way, then I think it's definitely a risk. And, and it, as I said, it runs a risk of not being authentic. I mean, what should, what should Australians love about Australia? You know, what, what is there to love? I mean, there's probably a lot of things to love, but, you know, 
maybe if we focus children on what is wonderful about Australia in a such a way that they can participate in it and see it for themselves and, and enjoy it and also see how we've come to that. So here's where history and, and understanding of history comes in. And this should be a warts and all kind of a, a view of history. Australia, like New Zealand, is, is a colonised country and, you know, there are it's a patchy history. It's not all a bed of roses, but neither is it, you know, what I think John Howard once referred to as a, a sort of black armband view where, whereby, you know, the colonial uh, powers are just exploitative and nothing else. It's a complicated thing and, and understanding history and its complexity and how we've come to where we are now. And also, you know, how much better things are now than they were 100 years ago, 150 years ago, uh, is something worth celebrating. And maybe, you know, then we can look ahead and see, and see if the next generation will have an optimistic view of where we're headed and instead of what seems to me a, a very pessimistic view at present of, of not only where we've come from, but where we're headed. So in, in Australia, we do a, a sample of students every few years complete uh, a civics and citizenship assessment. <laughs> and, and this effectively measures a, a number of awareness of democratic processes, uh, participation in civic institutions, these, these sorts of things that, that are quite common uh, metrics that are used to consider literacy, if you like, of civics and citizenship. Do you have a sense in New Zealand if these are improving, going backwards, staying the same, changing? What's the story in New Zealand? Well, I'm not, I'm not aware of any such measures here. Um, what, what I am aware of, I think, throughout the West, actually, through, in Australia and New Zealand, United Kingdom, United States, Canada, at least the entire Anglosphere, is, is an increasing tendency, tendency to disparage our systems, um, to see them as oppressive, to see them as uh, patriarchal or racist, these kinds of things. Now, they're probably not perfect in those respects. I mean, what system is? But it seems to me very perverse in a way because by comparison with many other systems currently uh, operating in the world and certainly with just about every system that has operated in the past, uh, we're much better off in, in those respects than we ever have been before. So it seems to me that that is something to really celebrate to make clear to children and uh, to inculcate the values that will allow that to continue rather than, you know, draw us into a situation where we put all of that at risk uh, because we say it's, it's not perfect or because um, there is still oppression or something. Thanks for everyone that's joining us live. A reminder that you can send through your questions and we'll get those through to Michael through the rest of our conversation. Uh, from our audience, Chris asks, is prescriptive multiculturalism leading to a fragmented group identity compatible with liberal democracy? Oh, well, that's a good question. So this goes to what we might consider the central unifying thing of democracy. And, and, and I also think of Karl Popper and his paradox of tolerance in, the, in this regard. So... To me, a, a liberal society, you know, in, in the small L sense of the word, one that's founded on enlightenment and classical liberal values that has given rise to the possibility 
for democracy should be as encompassing as it can be without threatening its own underpinnings. And that last part is important because obviously if you get to the point where there is tolerance of ideas to the extent that it, those ideas undermine the possibility of tolerance, then you get into that Popperian paradox and that, that then does threaten the, the foundations. So what is it, what do we mean by the multicultural values is the, is the question. To the extent that they don't threaten that underpinning, I would welcome as, as many different points of view as possible because they will contribute to better ideas. But if we're talking about uh, cultural ideas that are incompatible with, uh, with broadly speaking, broad liberalism, then we don't want those to take hold or we will lose what allowed us to be tolerant and inclusive in the first place. Is there a sense that, that, that some of those ideas are under threat in areas of the West? Oh, I think very much so. I mean, the, the foundational value for me is free speech because that is the thing that allows us to contest ideas freely without fear of authority persecuting us for it, whether it's a religious or a political authority. Um, and that value of free speech rests on the citizens of a, of a country holding that themselves. It's no good just holding it up as a constitutional thing. It's got to be something that is felt keenly by a large majority of the members of the, of the culture or, or are you going to be in trouble? And I do think that that is under threat. Um, we see hate speech legislation and other forms of censorship uh, becoming more prevalent. And that is not something that I think we can sustain if we want to keep our, our democratic underpinnings. So what's the, what's the main source of, of the threats to, three, for, to free speech? Is it, is it the popular culture? Is it in academic institutions? Is it, uh, is it uh, in, the, in workplaces? Kind of where is it really originating? We're familiar with some of the cases that we hear from abroad, uh, but where, where, do you, where do you feel that the, the real origin of that threat to free speech comes from? Well, I, I'll answer that in two parts. I, I, I mean, I think that the, the academic institutions, the universities are culpable. Um, going back a few decades, actually. So uh, there's been a kind of fusion of uh, postmodern ideas with identity politics. So the postmodern idea, you know, it's, it's an interesting idea in itself up to a point. Um, the idea that perhaps there's no grand narrative of history, that we can have a look at things from lots of different perspectives. If you don't take it too far, that's pretty good. But if, you, if, if we get to the point where we think that one narrative is just as good as another, that, that a scientific worldview is no better than a mystical one or a, a, a democratic narrative is no better than a totalitarian one, then it becomes toxic. And the infusion of identity politics, that is the idea that um, power relationships between people are predicated on uh, demographic categories, whether it's gender or ethnicity or actually social class seems to have fallen by the wayside for some reason is, is one of those things. But whatever it may be, then we start to set people against one another and we create 
the idea of oppressor and oppressed groups. And that opens the door to things like hate speech legislation to protect the, ostensibly to protect the oppressed. I'd argue it doesn't protect them at all. It actually threatens them in the longer run. But um, so I think that is an academic idea that um, has taken hold and has now infiltrated society at large. It's infiltrated uh, public and to an increasing extent private institutions. Uh, and that, that's a big threat. Um, on a broader scale, I think something else that has happened, see, I, I, I was born in the 1960s and when I was at primary school, uh, World War II, Nazism, uh, Soviet communism, the Holocaust, all of these things were fresh in people's minds and memories. It was only 20 years, 30 years earlier that these things were happening. And, and of course, Soviet communism was still in, in place. So that gave us a sense that democracy is a fragile thing, that it needs to be defended, that uh, threats to it can easily arise e even in affluent countries like Germany. Uh, so now, you know, 40 years later, I think those lessons have been forgotten to an extent as the, as the generations who actually experienced those horrors die out, it's all too easy to forget what the alternatives look like. And so there's that sort of historical trend as well, which is where, again, you know, education becomes so important. If we want to keep that alive, we mustn't forget those, those lessons. And I think it becomes harder and harder to maintain them as time goes on, once people are no longer alive, who actually remember what it was like. I definitely want to I'll return in a moment to the issue about division and how that sits within the current context around responses to COVID-19. But before we move on from lessons of, from history in school, is it the, so it's true that in, in largely most of the West, there is a tainted history and a tainted past, as, as you've alluded to. And in countries like Japan and Germany in particular, there's a sense of shame about the past for, for the reasons that you've articulated. Is that a constructive approach to, to address those historical wrongs? And do, is that same approach necessary for the way that the rest of the West thinks about its past? Well, first of all, I don't think that a sense of shame is very appropriate. I mean, first of all, you know, Nobody alive now was responsible for those wrongs. And it seems to me very strange to afflict a, a current generation with the sins of its, you know, great grandfathers or whatever. So I don't think shame is the right approach. Acknowledgement is very important. We have to know what happened, but not because we should feel terrible, like terrible people for something that we weren't ourselves party to, but because that is a possible thing that can happen. And it did happen. And the more we understand that, the better equipped we are to avert it happening again or to move to a more inclusive and more tolerant situation. So if we know, for example, that setting one group of people against another can end up with absolutely tragic consequences, then we might hesitate before we do it. And, you know, you mentioned COVID-19. I, I saw a clip of... Um, What's his name? Michael Gunning, is it? The, the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory. Michael um, Gunning, that's him. He was, he, was, he was claiming that, well, not only are 
you know, people who won't get vaccinated beyond the pale. So is anybody who would defend their right not to be vaccinated. And so that seems to me that what he's doing and, you know, I wouldn't exclude our own Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern from this criticism as well, is setting up one group of people against another. And of course, they'd say, well, it's for the, it's for the safety of us all. And, you know, they might have a point about that. But how should you go about this? And what will the consequences be if you create a two-tier society where you've got people who are, you know, vaccinated, who are normal citizens, and then you've got these this underclass of people who you've deliberately set, 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 set aside. See, it might be one thing to say that, okay, if you're not vaccinated, it's not safe for you to come into these restaurants or, or whatever it is. Um, while still honouring those people's choice to do what they've done or not do what they, they, they haven't done. It's another thing to vilify them. And I'm worried that we're moving towards a situation of vilification rather than what might be a legitimate public health response. So do you think there's a sense that the, the, the experience across the West in particular in handling COVID-19 and, the, and some of the, the responses to that regarding vaccination, like you suggest, but also the other elements about quarantining, restrictions of movement, restrictions of association, these sorts of things. How does this impact upon young people who, who we hope to revere liberal democracy and the liberties that that affords, but have also spent the better part of two years in, a, in an ultimately illiberal environment? How, how do we square that one? Well, maybe it could go two ways. I, I mean, I, first of all, I think it's tragic. And, and you know, w one could argue whether we should have lockdowns, whether we should close all the borders and so on. You know, maybe we should. I don't know. I, I mean, it doesn't seem to me that the, the level of threat of COVID necessarily justifies all of that. You've seen countries like Sweden who have avoided lockdowns. And, well, you know, they've had somewhat more cases than their neighbours and somewhat more deaths than their neighbours. It hasn't been, you know, the Black Death or anything. Um, and so they've managed to preserve this idea of liberal society and, and society at liberty um, while taking, you know, some actions to get through it with, with minimal loss. And I guess what it is, is um, to me, a, a sense that we should be brave enough to face something like COVID without sacrificing the future. And I worry that we haven't thought that through enough. Now, we might say the initial lockdowns were, were a kind of reasonable response in, a, in a, a kind of crisis environment. And so it's hard to hold against the decision makers that they did that, even if with hindsight, perhaps, you know, it was more questionable. But now we've moved on a good year and a half, even a bit more. How has our thinking developed about what it costs us in the longer run. I mean, you know, that's in economic terms as well as, as you say, social terms. What are the consequences for young people? And, you know, I work in higher education. I've, I've seen uh, now a couple of cohorts of people coming into the university who have been quite traumatised by disruptions to their lives that that a critical time of life for, for young adults in terms of uh, building social groups and social networks and social learning we're definitely seeing a, a rise in 
kind of mental fragility. Um, I hesitate to say mental health because I think that has become a little bit of an overused thing, but, but certainly they're not what I would call on average all that robust in their um, sense of themselves and, and, and in terms of their hope for the future. And I think that is a tragedy. Now, it's my hope that we'll move beyond that. And actually, this whole episode will be instructive rather than anything else. And, and they'll be able to um, use it as a way to uh, get back to something that's a, a lot more humane in terms of the, the way to live. Um, but, you know, time will tell on that. So I'm trying to think through here. So other ways that young people can develop the kind of reverence for uh, the values underpinning liberal democracy, what about the role of political leaders more broadly? And in a sense, their lack of fidelity sometimes to some of those principles. So in Victoria at the moment, there's, there's a discussion about emergency powers and how much that the executive government should hold emergency powers in the event of pandemics in future. Uh, the, your own prime minister, of course, quite famously said not to listen to any other evidence about the science of COVID-19 other than the government mandated evidence. Mm. To me, they, they seem like quite authoritarian principles. How could do, do we need to have better role modeling from our political leaders if we're to see that reverence uh, among younger people? Well, I think obviously, yes. But, you know, we're, we're not seeing that at the moment. And maybe, you know, in the case of Ardern, she's, you know, quite young, relatively young. And maybe she's of a generation that has, you know, forgotten or not learned the lessons of the past in terms of where things go when you say that the government is the single source of truth, for example. Mm. And, uh, um and, you know, I think you mentioned Victoria, Dan Andrews' legislation to basically accrete an enormous amount of power to himself um, to be able to declare a pandemic and then effectively suspend democracy, as far as mm -hmm. I can tell. Yeah. Uh, I mean, these are, these are terrible precedents, of course. Um, what to do about it, that's another question. I mean, I've seen heartening images of many thousands of, of Victorians on the streets of Melbourne protesting this, but... I've also seen disturbing statistics that suggest upwards of 70% of, of people are in support. So it's hard to know what to say when we get to the point where, you know, 70% of a, of a populace no longer seems to value liberty above what might seem an illusion of safety or something like that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to merge two questions from Peter in our audience. He asked two questions. One is how can we explicitly teach civics education in schools and particularly the benefits of democracy among compared to alternatives for younger students? And also do we need character education as well? Well, I think the answer to the, those two questions are almost the same, which is, you know, the question was how can we explicitly teach these things? And, and to me, it's something that we actually would teach more implicitly by giving young people you know, even very young children, a sense of what it is like to participate in, in, a, in a democratic conversation. So I would like us to be involving young people in conversations that, where they learn how to have disagreements in ways that are productive rather than ways that just divide people. And, 
As they get better at that, we can introduce more controversial and more difficult ideas until we're discussing things that they feel severely challenged by, perhaps. But then, you know, we're going to have to have these conversations. And, and, and if we had a citizenry that was used to that kind of conversation, then I think our democracy would be much healthier. And also, to answer the character question, I think that if we're able to bring people up to respect one another's points of view when they radically differ, um, even though we don't agree, we don't, we don't, and we don't like those points of view necessarily, but we can see the value of having a multiplicity of viewpoints interacting with no one person or group getting to be ascendant or to say, now we've won this argument, but rather to have it being an ongoing, it's a bit like science, right? In science, the way science works is that you have a set of competing theories uh, uh, explaining some phenomenon and scientists collect data and they, they run experiments and gradually they winnow those theories so that the ones that explain the, the observed data the best continue to grow and evolve and then we get more data and sooner or later we'll get more theories emerging from those that are even better at explaining the phenomena. So the conversation is never over in science just as it should never be over in democracy. Circumstances change, we need to adapt and having that robust capacity to disagree productively, I think is at the core of, of democratic values and, and what it is to uh, have a democratic society that can thrive and continue to flourish. Uh, we're just about out of time, but a question for you as well, Michael. Student climate marches, is this an example of uh, effective civics and citizenship, active participation in democratic institutions? Or Are you talking about ones that have been organised by adults? Or, That's know, the ones. That's the ones. I don't think so, because that... that, that that's a, it becomes a, an exercise in conformity, doesn't it? I mean, I'm all for young people being, you know, feisty and protesting, even if I disagree with the, the things they're protesting about. I'd say, great, you know, look good on them for getting out there and getting involved. But it should be self-organised. It should be something they do for themselves because they've taken responsibility, not because some authority figure says you should think this and get out there and protest and get angry. You know, so... That, that's one thing. And here's another thing. It should probably cost them something to do it, right? If you're, a pro if you're protesting, you know, that's a form of civil disobedience and it comes at a, a price. And it's, a, it's not that I want to see them punished, but for them to learn that in order to, to get change, you have to fight for it sometimes. It costs you something personally to stand for something. And I think that's a really important principle for them to assimilate. So where it's just this kind of, you know, authority organized protests so everyone can feel good about themselves. I don't think that's very productive, irrespective of the issue, you know, whether it's climate change or something else. It's just not, to me, the way protest movements ought to work. So a protest levy, uh, protest levy for, for those engaging. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's more like, um, you know, when people were protesting against the Vietnam War, for example, back in the 60s and early 70s, it was, it started off with them being seen as rat bags. But gradually they got a lot of um, support for their cause and to the point where um, it ended the war because, not because, you know, the United States and their allies had been defeated militarily, but because they could no longer sustain the war politically at home.
And so that to me is an example of a successful democratic movement. Irrespective of what you think about the issue, they, they did that in a way that cost them something initially in terms of they were challenging the establishment. They were challenging some, something that was, um, you know, hard to challenge, that could fight back and did fight back and, you know, with police and, and things like that. Whereas now it seems, you know, I mean, I've seen these things in the United Kingdom with the, what is it called, Extinction Rebellion or whatever, sits on bridges and the police give them muffins or something. It's like, <laughs> that's not really a protest, is it? <laughs> no, it seems more a social, uh, social outing. Uh, look, Michael, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Thank you no so much for your time and your comments. Thank you. And thanks to everyone that's been following us live. Um, this was episode 76 of On Liberty. We're back again next week at the same time and same place with your regular host, Salvatore Babonis, who's back in the hot seat. Uh, that'll be the second last episode for the year, so be sure to tune in. Thanks again.